0: We've actually got to shift their food intake to to suit when their training is so they're better off having more food in that half of the day where their training is focused so that they're getting as many nutrients back in as possible as close to the training session as possible
1: you're tuning into the high performance path podcast and i'm your host alex if you want to increase your productivity enhance your mental performance Hack your sleep, and build a bulletproof body, then you're in the right place. Get ready as we dive into interviews with performance coaches, business owners, and health professionals to find out their daily routines, habits, and movement practices. All right, let's go. All right. Welcome back to the High Performance Path podcast and welcome to the show, Beck. How are you going? Good
0: yeah, morning. Good. Thanks for having me.
1: No worries. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do. Yep. And I know you work with the Hunter Academy of Sport. Mm-hmm. Tell the listeners how you kind of got into that. Yeah, sure.
0: Um, so I'm an accredited practicing dietitian and also an accredited sports dietitian. Um, so I do work in my private practice, Nutrient Nation, which we're based within the Hunter Academy of Sport. Okay. Something a lot of people probably don't know about me is that I also work at the university in a research position oh, as well. okay. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, so I'm a researcher uh, and I try to incorporate that into the private practice yep. where possible. So when I came through uni and finished uni, I did my PhD in human physiology and in the final year of that I set up my private practice in the hope that I would have some work coming out of that and then I was lucky enough to get a full time position at uni at the same time. So since 2016 I've sort of been juggling the both of those. When I first started in my practice though I started off um, within a gym in town in Newcastle West was there for a few years uh, and then the lease ran out there so we were looking to move and the gym was looking to move to McDonald Jones Stadium which is where I am now uh, and we were looking for an office space for me to move with them um, but unfortunately there wasn't an office space in the area where they were going so I sort of reached out to the rest of the building so that I could still be in the same vicinity, Um, and I was lucky enough that the Hunter Academy of Sport had an office space that I could actually rent, Uh, and it turned out that only a couple of weeks beforehand um, their sports dietitian had moved on. So it was a bit of a, a lucky turn of fate, I think, because sports nutrition has always been the biggest passion for me in dietetics um so that was back into th- the end of 2018 so that's when i first moved into the hunter academy of sport uh and became their consulting sports dietitian as well so it was a pretty cool way that it came about yeah, awesome. ending up there. just
1: fell into place yeah
0: yeah so it was good
1: how did you find your kind of passion how do you reali- uh, when did you realize that you had such a passion for sports dietitian Ooh dietitian and then
0: sports dietitian yeah. yeah look going through high school i always loved nutrition i was always looking into different foods what nutrients they had i would train a couple of times a day at the gym i'd go to work as well i w- like after after high school i worked in hospitality you'd work sort of long hours of a nighttime i'd still go to the gym and i i really noticed the impact that poor nutrition could have on my performance, um, but also just not nailing it. Like, you know, you can have a healthy diet, but particularly when you're looking at sports performance, if you don't nail it, it can really have a big impact, not only on your performance, but your energy levels throughout the day, how, um, how well you can concentrate throughout the day. And I think for me, it was more of a personal experience that I really noticed those things But I wasn't ready to go to university then. Um, I just wanted to work, I wanted to travel, I wanted to have a bit of fun. So I didn't go.
1: Live life a bit. Yeah,
0: yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, And get sort of some of those other skills that you don't, life skills that you don't learn going straight from high school into university. So I didn't go back to uni until I was 27 or 28. Oh wow. Um, So applied for nutrition and dietetics and got into that. Um, And always knew I wanted to do sports, but you'd, you definitely get told that it's hard to get into that you area. You've got to work your way up to yep.
1: focusing on that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And the job opportunities in that space are pretty tricky to get into. So yeah. I just thought, well, you know, I'm going to create my own. Um, so working in the gym initially with my private practice was that starting point. Hmm. And it was a gym that had a really big focus on endurance athletes. So they trained endurance athletes. So then I got to really get into that nutrition space with them as well. Yeah.
1: Do you regret not starting your uni degree earlier or are you glad you started when you did?
0: I would recommend anybody wait to go to university, absolutely. Even like from my experience, I know that those life skills and having other jobs and travelling helped me in my degree and I supervise students that come through and teach students at the uni when they come through and I can tell the difference between those that have come straight from high school and those that have had some other experience beforehand and you start off at a higher level when you've had some other life experience before that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that as well. Yeah. Um, can you explain to the listeners mm-hmm. what exactly the difference is between a dietitian and a nutritionist yes I think there's a lot of confusion around that
0: yeah absolutely so a dietitian you have to have the undergraduate university degree degree to be qualified as a dietitian so both nutritionists and dietitian so we're nutritionists as well we just have the added qualification on top of that and nutritionists can work with just general kind of healthy eating cases these are healthy foods for you but they can't work with Clients that have particular health conditions, they shouldn't be giving medical nutrition therapy advice, which is that's what our extra qualification gives us.
1: Yeah. 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 Awesome. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, omega-3 and omega-6 fatty yes. acids. Yep. Can you explain what they are to the listeners and why they're important?
0: Yeah, sure. So omega-3s and 6s are polyunsaturated fats. So I'm sure a lot of people have probably heard of the the three categories of fatty acids. So we've got our saturated, our monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. Uh, Without getting too technical, if you think about a really long chain of links that are bound together, Polyunsaturated fats have a couple of their links that are bound by double bonds, Um, whereas monounsaturated fats, their links that are bound together, have one double bond and the rest of the links are just bound by a single bond. And then saturated fats are no double bonds at all, so their links are all just bound together by single, um, like binding. Um, Yeah, so that's sort of the main chemical difference between the different fatty acids uh, and then there's different health benefits of them so if we we look at where omega-3s and 6s come from So the body can actually produce omega-3s and 6s in the body to a small amount, but not to the amount that the body probably actually requires and to get those health benefits. So we really want to be getting them um, from food sources as the number one starting point. So our omega-3s come from our fatty fish, so our salmon, our herring, our mackerel, um, and then chia seeds and walnuts. And then our omega-6s are more plant-based so from some of our plant-based oils, so sunflower and safflower oil, um, also walnuts as well, and um, pumpkin seeds as well. So the health benefits that are proposed for omega-3s and 6s are, like the big one that's been around for quite some time is definitely heart health, particularly with with omega-3s, and then those health conditions that are associated with pain and inflammation, so typically something along the lines of arthritis. more recently, the mental health benefits um, are becoming a bit better, um, like well known. Um, so, improving memory and cognition, and depression and anxiety. So, the evidence is, is pretty good um, for omega 3s and 6s in, in those three um, spaces, but there's, there's always a bit of sort of cloudiness there. That not everyone sees. The benefits, and I think that's that's the hard part when it comes to research. That mm-hmm. you're always going to have people that respond and people that don't respond, and it probably comes back to what's their starting diet to begin with. Is it already adequate, uh, and what's their underlying health status? So if you're already in a good place, often. You know, increasing amounts of something, whether that's by food or supplements, may not give too much added benefit. Yeah. But if you're lacking to begin with, then supplementing or adding extra sources of these nutrients in um, can actually help.
1: Mm. Yeah, cool. So there's there would be a standard like, um, like an amount that you should have in mm-hmm. your diet.
0: Yep.
1: Is that – I've heard that that's quite – um, a lot of people don't reach that standard yep. in the typical Western diet. Yeah. Is that true? And how far off are most people from hitting the recommended intake?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we, we want to be looking at two to three serves of fish and even more so the fatty fish per week. And then having nuts and seeds in your diet every day of the week is probably going to help you get there. And most people – would not be doing that um, particularly not from food but then if they are taking an omega-3 supplement on top of that then they're probably hitting their omega-3s but not necessarily the omega-6s and i think that was it's probably the omega-3s that people lack the most because we don't typically eat a lot of fish and particularly fatty fish and there was some concern a few years ago that that ratio of omega-3s to 6s was a bit out and that there was more omega-6s than omega-3s and that can have detrimental effects. So now we know that we because omega-6s also have benefits, we don't want to be cutting out omega-6s. We want to be increasing omega-3s to make that ratio more optimal. Um, which is by increasing the fatty fish or omega-3 supplementation. And for a lot of people, the the practical side of of it is going for a supplement form because it's not always easy to fit those serves in.
1: Mm, That's what I wanted to dive into next, supplementing with fish oil. Yes. Because I know a lot of people do it, but they don't even know why. Yes. They just think they should do it, so they do it. And it's relatively cheap. Yeah. So they might as well. Um, but like you said, it's hard to know it's, if you already have enough or your ratio is fine, yeah. it's hard to see any benefit mm-hmm. of taking it if you don't need it. Yeah. So is there a downside to taking too much fish oil?
0: Look, I think that there's a downside to taking too much of anything, to yeah. be honest, because it's like, it's you know, the body knows what balance it needs and anything in excess is never really going to be um, that good. Um, you're going to get some kind of side effects. You know, people that take fish oil know that uh, you might get a bit of reflux and the that fishy taste is certainly not ideal. So if you start increasing that, um, you're going to get more of those side effects. There's, there's nothing out there to... Oh, Look, and and no research certainly doesn't mean there is no adverse effects. It just means that there's no research to support Mm. that. So at the moment, there's no strong research to suggest that excess consumption of supplements, of omega-3 supplements, of fish oils, um, is going to propose any adverse effects. But you would imagine that it potentially could because when you change one thing, There's always a reaction and then you're also altering. So the effects that the omega-3s have on the production of other fatty acids in the body is then going to be out of balance as well. So it's not just the omega-3s, it's the impact it then has Mm. on everything else in the body. So it's always good to go by the recommendations because when we don't know the implications long term of excess intake, then that's when we can get into trouble.
1: Okay. So going back to the weekly recommended Mm -hmm. amounts, you should be eating of omega-3 fatty acids. Yes. What was that again? And when would you kind of recommend someone taking official supplements?
0: Yes. So the recommendations from the Heart Foundation are around 250 to 300 milligrams per day. Um, so that can come from your fatty fish or it can come from the nuts and the seeds that we spoke about before. Um, so look, it's a lot easier if you aim to get a good source of omega-3s in every day of the week rather than trying to play catch-up on one or two days of the week because then you've got to have you know, a lot of them. Fish oil capsules are fine to take every day um, and for, for the benefits, you would. Supple- the supplement form... Um, look, different ones have different amounts, but they're more like one to three grams, uh, and that's of the like omega threes are the EPA and DHA. Um, so that's the combined amount of the EPA and DHA, which is the. What do the, they mean? So they're the long chain oh, yeah. omega threes, and they're the ones that have the benefits. Yeah. <clears throat> so if you find a supplement. Um, that doesn't have those in them, it's not going to be as as beneficial. So I know that there's some plant-based or some vegan omega-3 supplements oh, okay. that are out there, but they don't – because they're not sourced from a marine source, yeah, okay. they don't have EPA and DHA. So oh, they yeah. don't have the same benefits as a marine-based omega-3 supplement. Okay. So I know that vegan omega-3s are quite big
1: yeah, at the moment.
0: Definitely, um, yeah, and people just don't realize that they don't have that active ingredient that we really need in there the body so the body can convert the the plant-based omega-3s into sort of the beneficial omega-3s that we need but not to the amount that we need it to be
1: yeah yeah right so what do you recommend so what do you recommend to the listeners that are maybe vegan
0: yeah
1: How, what what kind of foods do you recommend them yeah, eat yep. to make sure they get enough of their omega threes. If the fish oil supplements, because they they come from animals, so they yes. can't have yeah. them. And if yep. the vegan fish oil supplements
0: mm-hmm.
1: aren't, aren't aren't to the kind of good standard, yes, yeah. Um, what do you recommend to for them to eat? Just more of the
0: yeah, vegan which fat? yeah, which is hard. Which is typically um, like your walnuts and your chia seeds are more. Um, the nuts and seeds that have omega-3s, yep. so they're going to need to be increased. So you might have a few walnuts in the day, you might make um, oats or a smoothie that has the chia seeds in there, and you might consider having potentially the supplement at the same time, so that you're yep. getting an increased amount of the, the non-marine sourced omega-3s to give your body the best chance to build as much as it possibly can.
1: Okay. Yeah. Awesome, is there any, like is there a variance between the quality of supplements or a lot of them fine to take? Like, is there any, what should you kind of watch out for?
0: Yeah, look, these days they're probably, because Omega-3, the, the benefits of Omega-3s has been known for quite some time now. The quality of those supplements uh, is definitely, you know, improved. But it is definitely, you know, if we're looking at, again, the marine ones, looking for Um, The dose on there to maybe be that two to three grams of the combined EPA and DHA. Uh, And it's similar with lots of other supplements as well. Um, Protein supplements is a good example where people know that they've got to have leucine, which is a branched chain amino acid, Um, But they don't know how much they should be having and a lot of protein supplements that you see you know the ideal amount is like 2000 milligrams or two grams and some supplements only have 500 milligrams in there so i guess it's also knowing that ideal amount that's going to get you that benefit that you're after so for fish oil it's that sort of two to three two to three grams
1: Let's talk about branch chain amino acids a bit. yes yeah. can you explain what they are to the listeners
0: yeah yep so amino acids are the building blocks in the body and then we can categorize amino acids into essential and non-essential and then we have our branch chain amino acids which are our longer chain sort of branch chain uh, and i guess it's all to do with the structure of the amino acid um, can you, so,
1: Can you talk about essential and non-essential, and yes. why they're essential and why they're not essential?
0: Yeah, definitely. So I guess the difference between essential and non-essential is whether the body produces them itself, so therefore it doesn't need to get them from food, whereas essential amino acids we need to get from food because our body doesn't produce them itself so we want to get the combination I guess the combination of the branched uh, sorry of the essential and non-essential amino acids gives us a complete protein so that's why we sort of want the combination of the two it's the branched chain amino acids that are thought to play the biggest role in muscle synthesis so they're the the ones that we typically focus on when we're looking at manipulating body composition gaining muscle mass and they seem to be the key that unlocks that muscle synthesis so without the BCAAs that's unlikely to happen but you can you know we typically get typically get enough of them from food that we don't really need to go down the supplement pathway I was going to
1: ask you that yeah cuz I've kind of had second thoughts on that as yep. a supplement yep can you explain what t- what foods you can have BCAs in that you can find them in. And so you do – actually, we'll start with that. What foods do you – like, can you eat to get your essential branched-chain amino acids? Yeah.
0: So, again, we're looking at our animal-based – proteins yep. so if you think of all of the foods that are in that category so your um you know any of your your meats your meat proteins so your, your red meats your poultry your fish uh, and then your dairy products um, as well so you know particularly with um, protein supplements if we're looking at a, a whey protein which is a certain part of the the milk that's been extracted um, has a much higher content of the branch chain ami- amino acids Because it's an animal-based protein. So that's, you know, and we don't fall short most of the time unless we're vegetarian or vegan. Mm. Um, We don't fall short typically um, getting um, animal-based proteins into our diet.
1: Yeah. Now, it's, what about um, vegans? Mm -hmm. Would you say it's beneficial for vegans to supplement with a BCAA supplement? Are, Are BCAA supplements vegan? um if
0: they no come. there are some so um particularly if we look at like there are vegan pro. so if you um combine a couple of different plant-based proteins so if we combine say um rice and pea protein yeah. you're going to still get that combination and you're probably going to get all of the essential and non-essential amino acids okay. so there are branched chain amino acids in non-animal based products but they're not in one particular food yeah you've got to combine lots of different things to get there um so there are like i would if i was recommending a supplement i'd recommend more of a protein powder that had the the combination of the plant-based proteins to get those um, amino acids in there Mm. um Because then you're getting the added benefit of the extra protein as well, as opposed to just getting the BCAAs from a single product. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, cool. So going, I I think a lot of people are starting to supplement with vegan protein, even if they're not vegan. Mm -hmm. Um, I use a vegan protein powder. Yep. I'm not vegan myself. Yep. I'm not against vegan. I just don't – the vegan diet for me – I'm not ready to try that yet mm-hmm. yep. for me, because my diet I'm I seem to be going fine with how I am. Yep. Um I will try it one day, mm-hmm. but I haven't tried it yet. Yep. Um now I do I have wanted to cut down a lot of my dairy intake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's one of the swaps I've made. I've yep. I've gone to a vegan protein powder. And that's a combination of rice and peak protein. Mm-hmm. Now there's I think you can get hemp protein as well. Yes. With vegan protein protein powders yep is there anything you should watch out for or that you recommend i know you just mentioned maybe a combination of rice and pea what about hemp protein
0: um so hemp protein as well so it's actually um i'm sure the hemp protein does it have some of the omega-3s in there as well from memory Um, but you know look, I can check up on that and get back to you about that but it is it's it's more so just making sure that your vegan protein gets all of the essential and non-essential amino acids so you definitely want to try and get a protein powder that has the mix Um, I know there's certainly some vegan proteins out there that don't they just have a single plant-based protein in there and it's just not going to quite hit the mark and because it is more tricky for vegans to hit their nutrient targets if Mm. you can find a product that does include more of what you need that you that it's not as hard to then get it from the rest of your diet then that's probably the way to go Mm. yeah
1: how how do we find out how much protein we actually need because i think a lot of people don't know where to start with calculating how much they need
0: Yeah. So we have general recommendations which start at 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And look, that's for the general population. So that's sort of the minimum amount of protein required um, for good health.
1: Like non-athletes? Yes. Because it would be different, wouldn't it? Yeah. For athletes and for general population. Yes.
0: Yeah, definitely. So then it goes anywhere from sort of 0.8 grams per kilo up to sort of two to three grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And where you fit on that spectrum is going to be dependent on Um, Of course your body weight because it's a per kilo calculation, Um, your training load, so how many days per week you train, the duration of your training sessions and then of course probably the biggest factor is the type of training that you actually do. So if you do more resistance based training then you're going to be at the higher end of the spectrum whereas if you're more of an endurance athlete depending on how long your training sessions are you might be more middle of the middle of the batch for aiming for protein um, so it's not, it's not too difficult to work out once you sort of know what, what those numbers are. And if you've got a way of, of measuring whether you're maintaining muscle mass throughout sort of, you know, week to week through your training program, if you're maintaining muscle mass, you're probably getting a decent amount of protein. If you notice that you're struggling to maintain muscle mass, protein is an obvious starting point to potentially increase and make sure – uh, we're getting enough. But I think it's proteins definitely the space that's changed a lot over the last few years. We used to just calculate a total amount for the day and say, okay, well, as long as you hit that, then that's fine. Um, but we look at it very differently now. It's more about the spread of protein across the day. Mm. So if I calculated that you should have 120 grams of protein in total – in the day, I'd probably look at splitting that into four meals across the day. So then looking at more, um, four lots of 30 grams of protein Mm. across the day. And I know then that that 30 gram amount within a particular meal is also sort of that ideal amount for muscle synthesis as well.
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things I wanna ask you based off what we've just said, Um, but for, so timing, Mm -hmm. of nutrients yes i want to dive into um but before i've um i've recently kind of heard from a few different sources that too much protein Mm -hmm. there's nearly no side effects yep so you're better off to be over your protein target than under your protein target yep what are your thoughts on that do you also agree with that
0: yeah the research space (coughs) Uh, has definitely changed um, in the high protein diet space. So we once thought that there was um, a negative effect of having too much protein, Um, but research is showing now that that's likely not the case unless you're in a population that has an underlying kidney disease because the, the kidneys have to process the additional protein which places an extra load on them. So if we're a general healthy population, there's probably not too much of an issue with having a higher protein intake my main concern look and I'm fine with slightly overshooting the protein just to make sure but I don't like people doing it in excess because again it comes back to well if I'm having far more protein than I need what else am I missing out on And that's the biggest thing for me because protein is not the only nutrient that we need to be concerned about. So if we're too high in one, it typically means that we're not high enough in others.
1: Yeah, cool. So I think my thoughts on that are if your goal is to gain weight or gain muscle, then there's nearly no side effects to having too much protein. But if your goal is to lose weight Mm -hmm. and you want to be in a calorie deficit, yep having too much protein, you may overshoot your calories yep. just because you've got too much protein. And also if you're, having, if you're hitting a protein target, yep. plus more, those calories could be put towards like um, more foods that are higher in micronutrients, things yep. like that, vegetables, mm-hmm. green. Um, or you, like you said, you might be off your carbs or your fats might be too low. Yep. So that, as far as I'm concerned, there's nearly no side effects other than that you could be putting those calories yes to other things
0: yeah and on a calorie i guess just to point out on a calorie restricted diet we would typically increase protein a bit more because when you're in deficit you're more likely to lose muscle mass which is not going to be beneficial mm. for weight loss goals so we yeah. would certainly increase protein to an extent and yeah as i said look there's there's no um there's no research out there now to say that we can't have more protein than what the general recommendations Mm. typically are and that can be beneficial so long as we're looking at the other nutrients in our diet and make sure making sure we're hitting hitting those and for for muscle gain or weight gain the main key to that is an energy surplus not protein so you know it doesn't as long as we're getting adequate protein if it if the rest of it comes from carbs or fat doesn't play an overly huge role so long as we're in a surplus mm. if we're in a calorie deficit and a super high protein intake we're not going to we're not going to gain weight and muscle mass it's, we've got to have that kilojoule surplus to reach that goal
1: yeah sweet let's talk about nutrient timing a little bit yeah so how important is timing around like this is for like kind of athletes yes Um, how important is timing throughout your day? Yeah. And when should you kind of, what food should you have around training, I guess?
0: Yep. Look, I think it definitely plays a really important part in performance and recovery. Um, How big a part it plays probably depends on the level of athlete that you are. It it definitely becomes more and more important the higher level athlete that you are. Um, But there's always going to be benefits in getting that timing right. So if we're looking at, Um, pre-training a lot of people skip um, breakfast or whatever meal it is prior to their training and they're not getting any kind of carbohydrate or fluid intake prior to their session and that can have a really big impact on performance and particularly for athletes performance is their priority so if they're not getting carbohydrates beforehand then that's impacting performance Um, looking at the recovery sort of window afterwards Um, you know, that sort of 30 to 60-minute recovery window, um, it's ideal to start then getting our protein, our carbs, electrolytes, fluid back in, in that window. But for most of us, if we're just general gym goers, we've probably got a bit more room to play there with how soon we need to have it. But for elite athletes, when they're looking for every small benefit that they can get, then the sooner they time that recovery meal into... Um, you know following their session the more benefits they're going to have Um, and then probably the again coming back to the protein across the day it's probably the biggest nutrient timing um, one that we want to want to get right so the the muscle will sort of continue to build and repair across the day but if we don't keep feeding it protein across the day the ability to keep synthesizing that muscle will decrease every few hours, which is when we then really want to top the protein back up again, um, particularly if we're doing a lot of training, because that's what's going to maximize the muscle synthesis across the day. So, um, you know, there's certainly benefits, more so timing around specific training sessions of the day where their training is focused, so that they're getting as many nutrients back in as possible as close to the training session as possible
1: so what do you recommend for people who train quite early and yes like this is pretty common like you said before a lot of people skip breakfast and don't eat before training Mm -hmm. what do you recommend they do for like a carbohydrate source or fluid before training
0: yeah so it's definitely very individual because we know sometimes it's not really an intentional thing that they don't have something beforehand it's um, is that they just can't really stomach anything beforehand yes. um, and I think that plays a big role and we always go with more fluid based options so for people that can't really stomach anything beforehand um, go for a fluid based option so whether that's just a glass of juice You know, something as simple as that, that you can get down. Some people can stomach a small glass of Milo, um, you know, milk with a scoop of Milo. Some people can't tolerate milk on their tummy beforehand, but we know that a fluid based option sits on the stomach a lot better. Um, If you have any products at home which are a sort of a carbohydrate powder, Mm. um, you know, even just adding a scoop of that into a glass of water um, just to give you. A little bit more carbohydrate to play with during your training session. Simple things like just a piece of toast with jam or honey, a banana. Like it, w- it doesn't have to be anything, um, you know, out of the ordinary. Um, but if you're really one of those people that just doesn't have the time and cannot stomach anything, your meal the night before becomes far more important. Mm, okay. So you need to make sure that it that that's a higher carbohydrate option, so that you've still got enough stores come a morning training session.
1: Okay, cool. For people that might be in that situation, yep. um, how does your last meal impact your sleep? Like yeah. if you eat a big meal too close to sleeping, yep. do you, I, don't, I don't know if you know much about this, but yep. does that affect your sleep at all?
0: It certainly does for some people. Um, and look, it's probably not, recom- you know, it's not ideal to be eating a super large meal you know, within an hour, hour and a half of going to bed. Um, So there's definitely some people that feel that they wake more um, during the night or it takes them longer to get to sleep because the stomach is still digesting that. And when we're lying down, it's doing that at a much slower rate than if we were sort of, you know, having a slow walk around the house. Um, So, you know, but I I still know plenty of people that can have a massive meal and they'll fall straight asleep and and stay asleep. Fluid is probably the bigger one before. Mm. uh, I know some people that train in the afternoon even later evening and then they've got to replace fluid afterwards and then they're up all up night, night running to the bathroom. Breaks. Yeah. So it, it's a really tricky one. I yeah. guess it's probably more you really want to make sure you're starting those sessions well hydrated. Yeah. Staying hydrated during the session so that for the few hours afterwards, it's more just sipping. You're not trying to scull mm. kind of liters of water before bed. I've
1: been supplementing with Hydrolyte oh, yeah.
0: before yeah.
1: training Yep, because that's... That's made for, you're not, it's made for like people who are, um, like dehydrated or mm-hmm. are sick and yep. have been vomiting or things like that. Yep. But if you just have one, even though you're feeling fine, mm-hmm. it can just rehydrate you with yeah. electrolytes yeah. and stuff. And it's, I've been having one of those in the morning, mm-hmm. which I think is half a serving. Yeah. So I think a serving is two of the tablets. So yes. I'll just have one in the morning. Yep. yep. And then one in the afternoon yeah. before training.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: Just to kind of, Space it up. but yeah. I think I think that works really well. When I when I get home from work, because I train in the afternoon, yes, just because of my work time and my my daily schedule, mm. I have to train in the afternoon. So I get home, I have a hydrolyte and I yeah. have a carb drink, yes. And then, since doing that, yeah. my performance, like my workouts, I feel so much better. Mm. Like I don't hit a wall, yes, which I have experienced in the past. Um, which I think has, yeah, that's that's been a game changer yeah. for me.
0: I think it's an interesting point because for a long time we've been told to watch sodium intake, haven't we? Um, You know, it raises blood pressure. Um, But we're talking again about the general population. We do sweat testing um, at Nutrient Nation where we measure people's fluid and electrolyte losses in their sweat. And the amount of sodium that an athlete can lose in one hour can exceed the daily recommendation that we would typically give wow. just the average person. Wow. So if we're not replacing electrolytes and particularly sodium um, and fluid, of course, then it can have a massive impact on our energy levels and you know how well we perform yeah. um, in our sport. So it is. It's it's a really it's a really big one. So having Having some either beforehand, um, which helps to retain a bit more fluid as well, um, or sipping it sort of throughout training sessions mm. can can definitely help people.
1: I didn't know that was a thing. Sweat testing.
0: Yeah. Do, yes. Is that
1: how does that process work? Do you do it during an athlete's workout or afterwards or?
0: Yeah, during. So we we get them in. Um, we try to usually it's an a, an additional session. So with some people with Hunter Academy we do it sort of within their set training sessions but um, individual clients that we get coming in and typically endurance athletes we set a session outside of their normal um, training um, unless we can tee it up you know that they're local and we can go and meet them at the park or something like that
1: so you can do it portably
0: yes you can just do
1: it where, like at a park or yeah, a track or something. Yeah,
0: and I, ideally it's it's often better because particularly where we're situated as well. If we get people to come to us um, at Broadmeadow, yep. it's flat. Mm. There's no hills or anything there, so it's not gonna it's not going to simulate what a normal training session or race would be. Mm. So we have clients that do um, endurance and ultra endurance um, trail runs, um, and they have different sort of training routes around Newcastle um that have a lot of hills in them. So we actually go out and meet them at those places so that we can do it in a simulated environment. What an awesome
1: day of work.
0: Yeah, I know, I know. Can't complain. There's some
1: really nice trails (laughs) in Glenrock. Yeah,
0: yep. Yeah. It's one of the bigger ones. Um mental blank with what the other one um is called. It'll come to me in a minute. But um yeah, it's like two kilometers of like, you know almost straight incline at the start of this other one that i'm thinking of so yeah it's pretty intense but that's the stuff that we love about sports nutrition but yeah so essentially we weigh them before and after a session we put patches on um, different sites of their body to collect um, the sweat and that that um, is the electrolyte losses in those patches and then the patches get sent away to the lab and then the lab send us um, the results and then with the the weight loss that we can see which is equivalent to the fluid loss over that period of time we can give them a, um, a per hour or a per liter um, loss of sodium okay yeah which is is pretty cool so it really allows for more personalized nutrition strategies
1: Okay, so is that what do you look? What are you collecting in the sweat test? Is it just simply for that? To yes. Co- to manage to measure the sodium loss. Yes. Yeah. For nutrition strategies. Yeah. Racing. Yeah. Is there yeah. a big variance of people? Huge. Because so, I know working in a CrossFit gym, some people just drip with sweat and yeah. some people don't. Yeah. So those people will lose a lot more sodium, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've look. Females typically lose less fluid and sodium than males we've had sort of females lose as little as two to three hundred mils of fluid in an hour Uh, we've had males lose up as high as 3.6 liters in an hour which is huge Um, sodium wise can range you know the low hundreds three or four hundred milligrams per hour maybe up to 1500 milligrams per hour, which the 1500 is sort of around that suggested dietary target oh, yeah. of sodium wow. intake. Um, and that it, so it varies so much from person to person. I think that's what makes it so cool because we can say to someone, well, look, you, you're kind of just, you know, taking a stab in the dark, mm. um, whereas we can really give you your, your numbers.
1: That's, that's really cool. Yeah. That would benefit a lot of people, especially people who are serious about you know, their racing and actually plan, you know, their race day, nutrition or whatever, especially on the long endurance stuff, like you mentioned.
0: Yeah, absolutely, because a lot of people don't plan ahead. So having a a, a nice um, strategy in place certainly helps them throughout those uh, races.
1: So what are some good resources that you would recommend on, like, nutrition? Yes. So, like, either authors that you like or podcasts or websites? Yep.
0: Yep. Um, so Sports Dietitians Australia is probably my go-to and particularly for recommending to um, to clients because they have a lot of free resources. So they have the blogs and fact sheets, which they have fact sheets for nearly every sport that you can think of, for adults, for adolescents, for intolerances, I mean, all of that sort of thing. What do they show, fact sheets? Um, yeah so they they just get um, you know a sports dietitian that's as uh, you know an expert in that area to write the fact sheet on um, you know what is the oh, okay. you know so the type of
1: different subjects and topics
0: yeah and what nutrition you should be focusing on depending on what sport you play um, you know whether you're a, an adult or an adolescent some of the barriers that you can come yeah. across and that sort of thing um, they have recipes and things on there as well if you're a bit more sciencey um the international journal of sports nutrition and exercise metabolism is amazing it's pretty much the go to for any sports dietitian in research when they want to publish a paper okay um if you like i don't i don't know if many people are on twitter i definitely see more sports kind of stuff on twitter than really? i do um like ev- sorry evidence-based sports oh, okay. stuff yep. on twitter then, um
1: than instagram say so.
0: yeah probably yeah. look there are some there's some amazing sports dietitians out there but not there's not a huge amount of them that are active on social media yeah. i know there's a lot of people have probably um seen alicia edge so she's with compete nutrition so she's local as yeah. well oh, yeah. she's definitely a go-to for people you know and she does um, weekly lives and she has some really good resources and things as well so she is definitely a local sports dietitian to go oh, to cool. as well for some really cool information yeah. um, the Australian Institute of Sport and um, Swiss as well so New South Wales Institute of Sport their websites as well have really good information um, on there and there's a, a book um, which is actually by the president of sports dietitians australia and it's called eat like an athlete um, and that came out last year i think it was um, so if people are after you know a book to read as well which really takes you know as complex as sports nutrition can be but really puts it into a format that's easily digestible Mm. um that's a really a really cool resource as well cool yeah
1: is there any other books that you would recommend or that's not to do with nutrition at all
0: what books have i got I'm terrible with remembering names of books. I see. I read probably more business books and things like that, but I, I never remember what they're yeah, called okay. off, the top of my, <laughs> off the top of my head, but happy to send a couple to you if you want to include it.
1: Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll put all these in the show notes. Yeah. All the links yeah. to whatever books or websites yes. um, that were mentioned. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, cool. Yeah. All right, well, we've got to wrap things up. Sure. So where do you want to send people? to any of your stuff or where can people get in contact with you if they want to find out more?
0: Yeah. So we've got our website, so it's just www.nutrientnation.com.au. Um, our email is info at um, And we're on Instagram, um, which is just at nutrient nation. Um, yeah, so we love getting messages and emails off people. Um, even asking questions and things, we're always um, you know, looking to, to get more engaged with people that are out there as well um, and seeing how else we can help people improve their nutrition for their performance because we, we certainly know the value that it has. Mm. Yep.
1: Awesome, all right, well thank you very much. It's been awesome having you yeah, on great. the show. Thanks for having me. All right guys, if you enjoyed this, please take a screenshot and share it. I'd love to see who's listening. And also please subscribe and give a rating on iTunes. Sending positive vibes to everyone out there. Thanks heaps for listening.